This is an ABC podcast. And hello, I'm Justine Toe. Welcome to God Forbid. I'm looking after things again this week while James Carlton is putting up his feet. Well, what's it like to be single in a world that wants you to couple up? Indian-Canadian YouTube star Lily Singh knows your pain. Have a listen. Every 45 seconds of the day, two things happen. Number one, I'm hungry. Number two, someone asks me, are you dating anyone? I get it. I'm a 27-year-old brown woman. You don't know what else to ask. Also, most of these people are my aunts, uncles, mom, and dad. And to you, I say no. No, I'm not dating anyone. If you are someone that is in a happy relationship and you're still hustling to achieve your dreams, you know what? You are just a better person than me because I cannot. Kudos to you, okay? Because I will continuously pick my job over a relationship. And hear me when I say that's because I want to. I'm not crazy, I'm not delusional, I'm not lonely, no, that is my choice. And dear world, family, friends, you don't need to feel sad for me. I never have to share my pizza, okay? I never get in trouble for not texting goodnight. I flirt with whoever the F I want, and I sleep in the center of my bed like a mother F starfish. I'm doing great. Well, that's Lily Singh going out to 14 million subscribers on YouTube. And in September, she'll be the first woman to host a late-night US TV talk show, A Little Late with Lily Singh. Now, that singular focus on her career that she mentioned, it's paid off. In 2017, she was ranked 10th on the Forbes list of the world's highest-paid YouTube stars, earning a reported $10.5 million US dollars. Now, Lily Singh was raised Sikh, and while she believes in God these days, she doesn't identify with any official religion. So she can't give us insight into what it's like to navigate singleness and faith. But our God forbid panellists can. Say hi to Haura Kash, Muslim performance poet and mental health advocate. Haura Kash, welcome to God forbid. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Sebastian Seb James, who sounds like his weeks are fairly packed. He's a freelance video journalist who also runs the Opus Day affiliate affiliated Mirabuka Study Centre in Western Sydney, which is a youth-focused charity providing study support and encouraging spiritual growth in young men. Sebastian James, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you very much, Justine, for having me. And Kamal Werakun, who's a minister in the Presbyterian Church who was born in Sri Lanka and migrated to Australia as a teen. Kamal is the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales, kind of like the chairman for this year. He's also on staff at Macquarie Uni Christian Union, and he's also pursuing a PhD in multicultural ministry. Kamal Werakun, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you, Justine. Great to be here. Now, before we get started, of course, we've had these horrible attacks in Sri Lanka. Have those attacks hit home for you? Yeah, they have it to a degree because I've got family there. My uncle and his family are still in Sri Lanka, but don't worry, they're okay. He was only like one kilometer from one of the blasts. So that was pretty scary for a time, but my family in Sri Lanka are all okay. Now, these blasts were scary for us at first because we thought they were the work of militant Buddhists who are opposed to Christians in Sri Lanka. Yeah, I know. That's really w- weird. Who thinks of Buddhists being militant? That's violent, yeah. yeah. But in Sri Lanka, there's this tradition of Buddhists who see the country as a holy land to Buddhism. Not everybody, but a minority, but a militant minority. They therefore don't want any other religion, Islam or Christianity, or for that matter, Hinduism, in the nation. But now that we know it's Muslim violence, that for me is actually more frightening 
because that means global jihadism is now seeking soft targets anywhere in the world. It seems to me that if it, I have no reason to doubt that it's correct, that these are jihadists who, from Sri Lanka who did this, but that means that they see Christians as soft targets to attack in the name of Western identity. And particularly because Christians form a very small minority, is that right, of the religious population? Absolutely. The vast majority of Sri Lankans are Buddhists. After that is Hinduism. After that is Islam at mm. about 10%. And only about 5 or 6% of Sri Lanka are Christians. Well, whatever the case, it's, a, it's been a terrible event. And yeah, thank you for sharing your perspective. Can I ask you, as though we try and get back to what we're, we're here yeah, to talk sure. about, yeah. Does any of Lily's experience resonate with you? Do you have relatives constantly asking you if you're going to meet someone? So it makes me think of a time like there was this really hilarious occasion when an Indian background lady whom I didn't even know in a social situation, she just barrels up to me and says, are you married? And I say, hey, uh, um, no. And she says, why not? And then she starts pointing out all these attractive young subcontinental background ladies and saying, why don't you marry her? Oh. Just take your pick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. So, yes, I, ex I extended compassion to her in that situation. Yeah, right. And, and what about your mum, who is a very prominent Christian, you know, sexologist? Does she want you to put a ring on it? Again, not, not, uh, not anymore. In fact, I actually think it's my dad who's more worried about me. And so I come from a Christian background and my parents did want me to get married. In a sense, they still both do want me to be comfortable, they want me to be happy, they want me to find love. Those are all good and true and normal parental aspirations. But because my parents trust God, and because I think they respect and trust me, they can see that I've decided to remain single at least for this time and be as useful to God as possible in my single situation. All power to you. Howra, Lily feels like she's got to explain and justify her singleness. Is that something that's familiar to you, particularly in your faith community? Oh, definitely. The beginning when she says, a uh, 27-year-old brown girl, so 27-year-old woman of colour, I oftentimes also get asked, you know, am I seeing anyone? You know, is that around the corner? What's going on? Am I not meeting people? Very rarely are they actually asking about my pursuits, about my career, about work, or the extracurriculars I do outside of work and the things that I'm really passionate and driven about and the ambitions that I'm pursuing. It's always, so when are we going to get you married? What's going on? Why, why isn't it happen happening for you? Do you just then tell them what you're doing, even if they're not going to ask? Sometimes I do. If it's like, you know, the aunties in the community, you know, the older women, out of indignance, I will. I'll be like, yeah, I'm kind of busy, you know, supporting myself financially and, and making way and doing great things. Uh, when it's you know, younger girls that are my peers, I can be a lot more real with them and just tell them that the likelihood of that happening anytime soon is a bit difficult considering the, the calibre of candidates that I'm dealing with. Well, we're going to get into the calibre of those yeah. candidates <laughs> shortly. But uh, Sebastian, let's turn to you. Lily spoke of her choice to be single and you made mm. that choice too. Yeah. At 16, you committed yourself to celibacy because of your faith. Yeah. How did you come to that decision and how do you make that decision when you can barely drive? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it's all obviously a long story, but I'll keep it short. But probably around 14, 14 and a half, I was seeking happiness in many things that most young teenage boys would. And I was starting to think a bit more broadly about, well, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Those sorts of questions started to come to mind. So as a young Catholic, I guess the way to answer those questions is through prayer. And 
at some point I felt that I could potentially have God as my main love, my source of love and my main lover in a way. And he offered it to me as, as an option as to give my life to him and to pursue his love rather than, I guess, a human love as my main focus. Yeah. And you're in your early 30s now and yeah. you are still standing by that choice to be celibate today. Is it, yes. is it difficult? Is it, is it lonely at times? My experience has been if you do try and put your trust in God and find solace in Him and consolation in Him or in, in Jesus Christ in particular, uh, then it's, it is possible to not feel isolated or lonely. I still um, have people around me that I, I also have a loving relationship with them, like my family and friends, of course, but my main focus is definitely our Lord. Like in a married situation, your focus would be your partner. So I don't feel, I've never felt lonely. I actually feel extremely peaceful and happy, and that's a very sincere thing that I can tell you. But I've had girls that have been interested, but I've had to say, look, this is a decision I've made, and, and yeah, I'm very happy in this situation. So a life of singleness doesn't yeah. mean that it's not a life of love. That's right, exactly. On RN and via podcast, it's God Forbid. Up next, singleness within the church. As we've just heard, being religious and unmarried can sometimes be a trial, even if you've actively chosen to remain single. Dr Catherine Grocott studied singleness within the church for her honours thesis, and the results are fairly damning. She found that people in Christian churches are far less likely to be single compared to the general population, but also that single women in churches outnumber single men three to one. So good luck to all the single ladies sitting in the pews. And Dr Grocott also found that many churches she studied didn't know what to do with the single people who did attend. I spoke to Catherine in our Adelaide studio. At the time, it was a very unusual and overlooked topic within the church. It wasn't one that had been explored in depth from a theological perspective. If I went to a, a Christian bookshop, I could find very few on singleness and the books that were on singleness, singleness was the problem. Not that singleness had problems, it was the problem. And to be able to deal with singleness, you had to get out of it. And to get out of it, you got married. So singleness was only seen as this temporary state. You spent a lot of work on this, obviously, but can you boil it down for us? Can you give us a brief summary of what you found in your research? There was a number of things that I discovered. So I did do a lot of interviews with people to ask about their experience. So I got a lot of personal anecdotes of life as a single person in the Christian church in Australia. Most of the responses I got were not so positive. So there were things like being told that they must have hidden sin in their life because they weren't married. You know, God couldn't give them a wife because they obviously harboured, you know, bitterness or anger. Things like if single people struggle with temptation, they just should go play sport. So, yeah, there were, I suppose, things that weren't very helpful for single people. A narrative that made single people feel somehow less than worthy, like second-class citizens in their own church, not able to contribute. For women, they found that because they were only valued in terms of relationship, if they weren't married, then they were not valued. For single men, 
they often felt like they were overlooked for, for jobs in the church or tasks or to be able to hold any form of responsibility because they're not married. So something must be a little bit wrong with them, you know, because they haven't found a partner. So therefore, we can't trust them or they're just not mature enough to take on the responsibilities of the church. Now, having said that, there are sections of the church that they do single this well. They encourage people, no matter what their marital status, no matter their age, to explore their gifts and to serve God in whatever way they are capable and able to. And I think it's in those settings that single people find that their, their skills, their abilities, their personhood can be best used by the church. I also looked at what's called the gift of celibacy or the gift of singleness and discovered that it doesn't hold much biblical weight. Sorry, you Uh, mean this idea that some people have a particular call upon their lives to remain single or to remain celibate? Yeah. Basically, for some areas of the church, um, singleness is understood as a supernatural empowering, so a a charisma, a, a charismatic gift that God gives to some singles to be able to kind of coast through their singleness, to be able to manage singleness without too many bad side effects. But the problem is that that creates kind of like a two-class tier system where there are some Christians who've got the gift and some Christians who don't. At its most extreme, it can be used to determine whether people can marry or not. So if you've got the gift, well, you're not allowed to marry. But if you don't have the gift then you need to get married because you're going to suffer from temptation and angst. So, I mean, that's its most extreme version within the church, but biblically it doesn't hold weight. Uh, At no time is the gift of singleness expressed as a spiritual gift. It's just expressed as a state of being because marriage is a gift as well. So, when you are single, you have the gift of singleness And when you, or if you get married, you will swap that gift for the gift of marriage. But inevitably, that gift will need to be swapped again because either one person will die or there will be a separation. So you return to a single state. So you, again, swap the gift for the gift of singleness. So it's not a supernatural empowering. It's simply singleness is a state of being and marriage is a state of being and both are good gifts from God. That's Dr. Catherine Grocott, whose honours thesis explored both the theology and experience of singleness within Christian churches. Kamal, Jesus was single and unmarried, but could he get a job at an Australian church? And have you ever felt a second-class citizen within the church? (laughs) Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting question. My own personal experience is mixed. When I applied to the Presbyterian denomination to become what's called ordained, when I applied to basically become like a a paid minister, everybody spoke very positively towards me and I felt encouraged and I felt equipped as a single man to be trained to be a minister. But when it came to the reality of getting a ministry job first up out of college, it was actually a, a little bit difficult. Now, I was offered quite an attractive role in the Gold Coast, where I could perhaps go and do ministry to people who were also single. But in that particular context, the one vulnerability that I carry as a single person is that all my family and friends, my ministry colleagues, they're all based in Sydney. I don't carry my community with me 
as in I don't have a family. So I need to remain in Sydney and remain within those communities where I feel supported and connected. So I asked to stay within Sydney and that gave the denomination a headache. Howra, Catherine's research suggests that there's a bit of a man drought in the church. Is that also an issue in Islam? <sighs> man drought, okay. Um, I, I wouldn't say man drought. In the mosques, it's predominantly men that show up. Uh, the women's sections are usually smaller. You don't find as many women there unless it's, you know, Ramadan or a particular time of the year. Uh, so generally, it's predominantly men at these mosques. It's more about the, the way of thinking, I suppose. In what way? So if they're of the conservative nature, for example, uh, that's a small, tight-knit community. Or if they're completely liberal, then they're disengaged and you don't really see them around. So it's more a matter of when do you cross paths with these people? If, if they're of a, a more liberal stripe and you might be more attracted to that, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so if men are more conservative then, does that mean that they may have more conservative notions and expectations of what they want from a wife, for example? Yeah, more conservative um, wants from a marriage and also from their values and how they live their life and their perception on faith and how they practice their faith because even though you could be from the same faith and even same denomination, if you are more fluid or more spiritual and not as a Coherent in your faith, then that could cause a clash. However, Catherine said that women were often valued in terms of relationships within the Christian church. And so if they were unmarried, they were seen as less than worthy. Is that sense something that you come across in the Muslim faith as well? Um, in the Muslim community, not so much less than worthy. Their accomplishments and ambitions and the things that they've done for themselves don't really amount to much. It's not as impressive as a man that has set himself up and has worked really hard and built a career and, you know, been able to buy property and, you know, start a business, whatever it is. It's not as impressive if a, if a single woman in the community does that. And she isn't looked as lesser, but she is kind of pitied and there's this need to get her married. Like, how are you not married? Like, it's none of that amounts to anything and it makes no sense that she's single and she's only validated through marriage. That is the perception, basically, and the attitude culturally. And this is me speaking about it quite frankly. So this would make a lot of people uncomfortable and they would deny that there is that sense of pity. But I've experienced it firsthand. I've seen others experience it firsthand. I know women in the community that are older than myself, only by a few years and suddenly... The attitude surrounding them is as though they're spinsters and there's no hope for them getting married. So if you kind of reach a late 20s sort of age, then suddenly you've crossed a line and suddenly, mm. yeah, it may not happen. Sebastian, can we bring you in, in here? Yeah. Is, it, is it easy to be single in the Catholic Church where I suppose marriage isn't so privileged? Yeah, uh, I think it sounds like it. I mean, obviously I'm only speaking from what I know. But yeah, I feel very supported in, in my decision. So I don't know if that would be supported in other faiths, that deliberate decision to say, no, I'm, I'm going to not have a girlfriend and I'm not going to get married, basically. But out of love, out of love and out of service, um, I think people understand that. So I think you've got to make a decision either way at some point, obviously, before you are six feet under. And if you had good parents and, and, and good family around you, I guess they would be concerned for you if you were single and not attached um, either to Jesus in celibacy and directly to him or, or to a, another person in some way. 
Can I just ask Kamal and Halra just briefly, are there sacred texts within your traditions that would tend to privilege marriage over singleness as well? Yeah, so Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, right where the story begins, God creates human beings, male and female, and the implication certainly from Genesis chapter 2 is that the humans, male and female, were created to be married. And in Genesis 1, it says, multiply, fill the earth, and that means have sex. And in the overall like narrative of scripture, that means get married, heterosexual uh, marriage, Jesus himself talks about divorce and marriage and invokes those texts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So, therefore, in Christianity, there is a general expectation of the goodness of being married. That's why Jesus himself, as an unmarried man, was such a surprise. And it's particularly because rabbis could be married, right? Absolutely. The, The reason that nowadays in the New Testament, in the Christian context, there is even any space for single people is because of Jesus himself. So, it, I guess, dethrones marriage as the ultimate be-all yeah. and end-all. And uh, Hara, what about for you in the um, Muslim tradition? Yes, yeah, so in the Quran, in uh, chapter 30, Arum, uh, there is a verse specifically about God saying that I created you in pairs, I created you and a spouse for you, as well as a verse in chapter 4, An-Nur, um, sorry, An-Nasat, and it goes into saying, I created you as a single being and I created a mate for you. So it is emphasised that you do get married and it's part of the whole creation and part of the purpose of life. So a bit of pressure coming. Just yep. a tiny bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but it does address singledom. So could what does it say about singleness then? So in singleness, it does. it's not as unforgiving as the community um, around singleness. So there is a, a, a chapter, sorry, a verse in Unnord in chapter 24 that says, if you cannot marry, if you do not find someone to marry, maintain your chastity and God will protect you and have you in his favour. So even then, it is understanding of the fact that you don't necessarily always find someone uh, that you align with. So maybe you should be waving that that uh, verse. I try. Trust me, I try. <laughs> <laughs> this is God Forbid on RN and via podcast with Hara Cash, Kamal Warakoon and Sebastian James. We're looking at singleness and religion. Up next, if you are going to marry, can you marry out of your faith? If you're religious, pressure to marry is high and marrying out to someone of a different faith or none at all is frowned upon. This is especially true for groups that blur the lines between religion, culture and ethnic identity, like Jews and Zoroastrians. Such communities stress the importance of marrying within the tribe so as to bring up any children within the faith. But what do you do when these faith groups make up such a tiny portion of the Australian population? How are you supposed to find the right match? RN's Rachel Conn decided to find out. In 2014, she boarded a Jewish singles cruise in Sydney Harbour and spoke with one of the organisers, Lee Gallenbeck, from the Central Synagogue. Rachel asked, is it difficult for young people to stay connected within the Jewish community? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are a lot of secular influences in all our lives, Um, you know, particularly if we're pursuing career ambitions or, you know, we have friendship circles outside of the Jewish community, you know, there are a lot of competing elements in a young person's life living in sort of a secular community like Sydney. So for myself and the other organisers, this is just to allow them to have that connectivity to the religion and the the community. Well, you're a young adult. Has it been challenging for you to find the right sort of person? It is a hard challenge to small community. 
And what sort of things are you looking for as a young, attractive Jewish woman? Um, look, it's, I think everyone's on their own search. Myself personally, you know, I have sort of several different things I'd like to achieve in this lifetime. And one of them is bringing, you know, bringing up Jewish children and having a Jewish home. So from that element, it was just finding someone who was willing to, to do the same as me. Is it uh, difficult to find a person who you think will bring up your children as Jewish in terms of the commitment to the tradition? Yeah, look, it is. I'm actually not with someone who's from the Jewish faith or background, so I'm with someone who's converting into the into the background. So it's been um, it's been a very interesting journey for the both of us. Um, he comes from a Hindu background, so it's sort of bringing the two worlds together. If you find someone from within the community, it's not too ter you know it's not terribly difficult. There's a lot of facilities and there are a lot of events that allow that sort of flexibility. It's just finding the right balance of religion and life. For you, what is the most important thing in a relationship? Um, look, I think over the over the years, I've come to realize for me. It's solid communication and similar, if I could say goals, but just principles and values in this life. And as long as we can come to a point where we see the same, or at least we're eye to eye as much as possible, that's very, very important. But I'm a, I'm a big believer in communication because I do believe you can resolve anything through good communication. And how important is community for you? Very important. For me, it's extremely important. Um, I've lived overseas often and I've always missed having a community and to me that's just extremely important but I feel that there's many many communities you can choose from as an individual it's just finding one you're comfortable in. That's Lee Gallenbeck whose then fiance converted to Judaism speaking to Rachel Kahn. We'll have a link to that full interview on the God Forbid website. Haura, you're a young, very attractive Lebanese Muslim. <laughs> Thanks. What are the values you look for in a partner? Are they the same as your families or your mosques? Not necessarily, no. I do tend to clash with my um, parents and mosque or the one that I frequent. In terms of the values, look, it's really important to me that they are of the Muslim faith because my fundamentals, my principles, my values stem from there. In terms of being of a Lebanese background, for example, that is something that I'm open about. However, that's not something a lot of people from the community would be open to. Um, my parents definitely wouldn't be open to something like that. So mixing cultures is difficult, but not completely shunned upon or turned away from. The faith is mostly what matters. For me personally, Muslim matters. Everything else is open, basically, for me personally. And can it feel like a bit of a village atmosphere in your community where, you know, every move you make is under scrutiny? Does that also add another layer of pressure? Oh, for sure. Definitely. You're scrutinised. You are very closely scrutinised. So I'm, I'm kind of privileged that I can pick and choose when I do engage with the community because I don't live so closely to everyone. So I'm very diligent around when I do get involved, when I do get invested. But the more that I do 
And the more that people know about me, the more heavily scrutinised I am, especially having a presence on social media. So I'm easily accessible. Where were you the other night, that sort of thing? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Where were you the other night? Uh, How can you be attending these kinds of events and then at the same time engaging in a community event, a religious occasion? You you know, um, complexity and nuance and being a whole being with a variety of interests is very difficult for the community to wrap their mind around. So it's something that I have to continue mentally and emotionally uh, reinforce that these people are not synonymous with my faith and my relationship with God and and also my relationship with a future partner. They're not synonymous. Wow. Uh, how is lifting the lid, I suppose, <laughs> on, the, on the community. Seb, there used to be a lot of pressure for Catholics to marry other Catholics, but mm. now not so much. Why I, is that? Yeah, it's a good point, actually. I think there is less pressure. Um, the, the Probably the original pressure stemmed from our idea that you should raise your children in your particular Catholic faith. And that still is a principle. So even when a Catholic is is going to marry, say, a Muslim or a a Protestant Christian, they have to still ask that their children be baptised into the Catholic faith. Before they obviously get married, they have to come to an agreement on that um, and that they'll be raised as Catholic. So I have plenty of friends now that are married to non-Catholics, but if there's no agreement on that um, ground, then it's very difficult for a Catholic to marry. Can be a bit of a deal breaker. Yeah. And Seb, what do you do when you feel attracted to someone? Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's it's a great question as well. Um, Obviously, I think it's very similar to a married man, I think, in, in the sense that you if you feel attracted to a woman that um, is not your spouse, then you should probably uh, work out through self-reflection, I guess, well, what, what do I need to do to make sure that I don't fall head over heels for this for this girl, basically? You've, you've just got to put certain boundaries around that relationship because I've definitely the chemistry is there sometimes and you feel it. And then I also seek, obviously, consolation and solace in, in our Lord, in Christ. I, I definitely spend a lot of time in prayer. Um, I remember one specific occasion where I was feeling very attracted to this girl at work and uh, and I think she felt the same. And uh, and then I remember going home that night and where I live, there's a chapel. So um, just, you know, on my knees asking our Lord, like, what is going on here? Because the chemistry can be quite strong and, and amazing. That's a very real prospect for many people. And that's why you see um, even infidelity within marriage because chemistry or eros, as the Greeks called it, is a real thing. So, yeah. And Kamal, would you ever consider marrying out? And what if the other person converted to Christianity? Does does that risk alienating you from your community if you decide to do that? Or, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, um, I'm on the conservative side where we need to marry someone who is converted to Christianity and trusts Jesus Christ. And I've taught that and I'm public about that. So, I would only marry someone if I was confident that she was properly trusting Jesus. That said, I could most certainly marry a convert. I just need to be confident that she was converted because she loves Jesus. Yeah, I agree. If it was uh, someone reverting to Islam, they would have to have reverted of their own volition and not just so they could marry me. I'm, mm. I agree. Mm. Yeah, because um, our religious identity and our religious loyalties are transcendent over everything. I mean, that's that that goes on forever, whereas marriage is only for this life. I mean, I remember, Haura, a few minutes ago, you talked about needing that spiritual unity with someone if you are going to be married to them and so on. Yeah, so... Um, 
In my particular case, because I haven't taken any vows, because for me the singleness is just a good thing because I enjoy being a single minister, I could get married anytime. Even as a middle-aged man, in Sri Lanka, we still have arranged marriages and Christians don't mind arranged marriages. So really, I got no excuse. I could just ask my parents and it's not <laughs> get quite, it sorted out. Yeah, it's not quite that they'd whistle someone up. I mean, it's not like on demand. That's really creepy. But I could get married if I wanted to. Well, we've been talking about, I guess, the downsides of community where people are watching your every move. But what about the positives? The 2018 Loneliness Report found that one in four Australians feel lonely every week and some 30% don't feel part of a group of friends. So can I get a quick scan around the room? What are the positives of a community of faith when you're single? Oh, for sure. I mean, especially if you're connecting on the premise of the spirituality. So if it is based off of an occasion, like for example, in Ramadan, uh, you find Muslims in hordes and flocks that you don't normally see throughout the year, all at the mosque every single night throughout the 30 nights. And it's just, it's so reviving. It is. It's incredible. I, you know, meet people, I interact with people, and then they, I maintain those friendships and I get to engage. And sometimes we're not always like-minded individuals, but that value-based connection, that spiritual-based connection it sets us up. So there, there are times I do feel isolated and lonely, and then it's just a matter of going out to a, a community event hosted by the local mosque or something. And I suddenly feel a little bit better and a little bit more revived and connected to other people. And then I just go back home. <laughs> Kamal and Seb? Yeah, definitely. Because I've already said how I felt loved by my church. But um, I wonder if the epidemic of loneliness is because in Western culture, we have connected value and personal health so much with sex, sexual fulfillment, and other erotic fulfillment and romance. That is, I wonder if we don't have a category anymore for genuinely loving, non-sexual, mm. intimate friendship. I'll tell you now, I'm, I'm heterosexual, okay, and I've never felt same-sex attraction. There are girls whom I'd say I quote, love, unquote them, but it's not sexual. I mean, it actually makes me uncomfortable to sexualize those relationships. It's almost like I'm disrespecting them. But I'm very happy when I'm in their presence. There's a, a warmth of feeling, I think it's reciprocated, which I interpret as like intimacy, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, friendship, friendship. really. And those, yeah. that makes me feel valued. And the fact that they are competent, confident women, that actually makes a difference because there are guys whom I also relate to. They also make me feel happy and loved, but it's different. It's different because women are women and men are men. I love it. So you feel very well connected. Absolutely. Yeah. Seb? Yeah, I think uh, community is vital and we, know, we all know that. And even if you've made the decision to stay single, um, you still need family around you of some sort, whether it be maybe not biological family, but a family of sorts I think is important. And it's, it's important to even understand um, within Catholicism, there's been a bit of a problem with um, men who have decided to become ordained priests being very isolated in that role, um, mainly because there's recently less priests or less people being ordained, less men. And so uh, we need to work on giving them a sense of community and making sure that they feel supported because, yeah, we definitely need that we're, you know, we're human beings, we're physical beings, we need that physical interaction and we're spiritual beings. So you need to be feeling loved on, on both, in both ways, I guess. 
On God Forbid, we're talking about singleness with Seb James, Howra Cash and Kamal Warakoon. You can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on iTunes or via the ABC Listen app. Up next, the power of singleness. We've been talking about the ways that the stress on marriage and family within faith communities can wind up stigmatising singleness. But are we prepared to see singleness as a form of empowerment? In our sex-saturated times, it's probably hard to buy that. And maybe the demand to be single and celibate is too high a price to pay, especially if you're a Catholic who feels called to a vocation in the church. Of course, for men, that means entering the priesthood or perhaps religious life as a friar, monk or a brother. And for a woman, that usually means being a nun or a sister. But there is another option. Zara Tai is what's called a consecrated virgin. She's one of only nine in Australia, and the way she owns her choices is intriguing. She spoke to Siobhan Hegarty to please explain. Please explain. A consecrated virgin is a woman, a virgin, who is married to Christ. We are consecrated in a specific diocese. In this case, it's a diocese of Parramatta. So in that way, my religious superior is not a nun, but the bishop of the diocese. We are financially independent, so we don't receive any funds from the church. So we have ordinary jobs, we have professions, we have careers, we have lives, basically, that are outside the structure of the church. And what are some of the responsibilities of being a consecrated virgin? The most important aspect of being a consecrated virgin is prayer. Prayer, service and penance. And the service to the church doesn't necessarily have to be in a specific role or ministry. It can be in your ordinary lives. So while I do do some work for the church, I think the greatest benefit for me as a consecrated virgin is being where the church is not. Like I do a lot of different sports in my work, in my day job as a town planner in local government. I am there with the people. And so what happens often is that there are a lot of people who come to me for different questions, but they may not go anywhere near a church or a, or a church official. So how did you come across the, the concept? After a lot of soul searching, I identified who I really was. And this was pretty much, you know, as a woman, virgin, dedicated to, to Christ, to be of service and to dedicate myself in a specific diocese. And it sat with me for, for years and it felt so right. But how I came across it was I, I contacted my old university chaplain. And I said, this is who I am. Does it exist in the church? And he said, yes. And it's called Consecrated Virginity. And that's where it all started. It was a watershed moment for me. As soon as I heard it, I knew that this was for me. There wasn't any choice from that point on. There wasn't anything, should I or shouldn't I? It was that was it. This is who I am. And there was nothing that was going to stop me. What sort of receptions did you face from friends and, and family when you told them what you were planning on doing? Uh, mixed, mixed feelings. My family were a bit cautious, a bit concerned, but I just had to be adamant about this is the calling for me. It's about what I'm to do, not what everyone else wants me to do. I think a lot of my friends who are outside the church were very supportive of me because they could see something occurring. Inside the church, um, they knew that I was searching. Some had felt that I ought to become a nun. Some were just not sure. But the longer I pursued it, the more they realised that this is is very important to me. And they supported me. There are very few consecrated virgins living in Australia. How many are there? 
There are about nine of us in Australia, as far as I know. And I, was think, I think I'm the last one to be consecrated. But I do know a few women who are discerning it. Some of them are religious and nuns that are perhaps not sure of their vocation, so they're looking at, at a way out. But some are also women who feel a bit like me. They're not called to traditional forms of religious life, but they want to be mystically espoused to Christ but belonging to a diocese. I think one of the reasons perhaps why it's not taking off in Australia is that it's simply not known in Australia. But worldwide, it, it is well known. I travelled to Argentina last year and there are about 190 consecrated virgins. In the different places I went to, I often introduced myself to the local priest, and there was no questions about who I was. But when I speak to some priests here in, in Australia, or even some bishops, they hear about it, they're not so sure about it. What is it? Some priests have said, oh, so you're a permanent single person. And that's clearly not the case. I am married to Christ. That's consecrated virgin Zara Tai speaking with Siobhan Hegarty on RN's Soul Search. We'll have a link to the full version of that interview on the God Forbid website. Seb, Zara speaks of this irresistible calling to this life-serving God in this way. Does that resonate with you? Yes, 100%. And it's, it is very difficult to describe it to people. This interior calling that people feel, it's very difficult and it may be even very different for each person. So in her instance, in Zara's instance, it may have been different, but I definitely can resonate with the idea that there is a powerful calling that occurs. It's not like an angel appears to you or, or Jesus appears to you in some strange way, but you have an inner voice or the voice of God within you, that capacity to communicate with our Lord. And I felt that and that he was giving me, this is an option. Yeah. Give me your entire life and I will give you incredible happiness. And I've experienced that. So... Hara, what do you make of this? Does, does the life of a consecrated virgin appeal? Uh, no, actually, sorry, Seb, but in Islam, celibacy is rejected categorically. So we are to abstain prior to marriage, 110%. There is no ifs, ands or buts about it. However, in Islam, there is a very healthy relationship in understanding the natural need for a sexual relationship between a man and a woman within marriage, of course. And... Obviously, you can't help the course of your life. If you end up being single, you're single. You still abstain, um, but you haven't committed to a life of celibacy. If you happen to meet someone a lot later in life, then you, you marry them. You meet them, you marry them, and you consummate the marriage. Our sheikhs marry. We, we don't practice celibacy at all. Seb, uh, Zara said that people have a hard time understanding her choices. Do yeah. you find that as well? Yeah, obviously. And that's, I think that will always be the case. I don't think celibacy is very common. I mean, as um, Kamal pointed out, our Lord Jesus Christ was celibate, but I don't think it was understood even in his time. And I don't think it will be understood in our time, especially how highly sexualized our culture is. Seb, do you think people would understand your choices more if you were pursuing a religious vocation? And yes, again, yes. I think um, within my own faith community, people do ask me, why am I not a priest? Um, or why am I not a monk? <laughs> it seems a bit odd being a lay person and having a, just a normal job, living in a very ordinary life, but yet remaining single. It seems very odd within my community. And yeah, again, I don't think that will change within my lifetime. I don't think people will understand that, but I'm happy <laughs> that they don't. I'm, I'm fine with that. So You're happy living yeah. that difference. Yes. Yeah. Um, Kamal, Seb just mentioned that we have this very sexualized culture. You've written that being single and being okay with it 
almost rebels against this idea that you need to be sexually satisfied to be completely whole and human. Now, people are going to say, you're just repressed. You know, how how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I'll tell you that I'm a, I think I'm a normal sec, like heterosexual person. I do have my desires. It seems that nowadays the idea of control, that you, you respect your desires, you accept your desires, but you manage them according to a higher goal and that you, you're convinced that there's a structure wherein it's good to express those desires. And if you're not in that structure, heterosexual marriage, which is what I believe, then you shouldn't express those desires. People don't even seem to think about that. The way that I think the Bible talks about sex is that it's deeply good, but precisely because it's good, God gives us a particular pattern where it's good for ourselves and those we're in relationship with and society in general to express that good drive. Now, because I have that conviction, I can accept my feelings And like I said, I have relationships with women, but I don't want to sexualize those relationships because I don't want to marry them. And now that may just seem weird, but I hope that listeners, you can understand the the basic moral framework that I'm coming from. Yeah, well, it, it's, I mean, it's not just the religious also who, who idolise marriage. Hollywood very much does as well. It must take a lot to go against the flow of that sex-obsessed culture. Is that There's a kind of rebellion going on in what you're talking about, really. I suppose so, although honestly, I never thought of it like that. I just thought in terms of I want to live well and I want to contribute to the world as a Christian. Genuinely, I have always found the warmth of relationships. If I ever do get married, I I suspect I'll get married because I enjoy her company. It's not just sex. So, am I being rebellious? I mean, maybe, but it's an accidental rebel. (laughs) Let's talk about how you feel that your faith communities can better support single people. Let's start with Hara. I feel lessening the taboo, usually the discussion around singleness is the pursuit of marriage not singleness itself. So singleness is touched upon as a default of you are unmarried. That is what single means, not that you are just your own entity kind of thing. And, you know, there's this attitude around if someone's just not finding the person that they're aligning with, then they're very picky uh, or impossible to please or that they are, in fact, turning away from marriage. And, you know, how could you? That is turning away from one of the prophet's traditions. So removing that stigma allow us to be multifaceted people. Kamal? The fundamental issue, I think, is thinking in terms of honouring God, serving God, caring for people, and living vigorously for God, whether we're married or not. Now, I expect, because marriage is a good thing, and in that sense, I agree with Haura, but do we have the imagination to think that for a minority, but perhaps still some of us, staying single, being sexual, but not enacting our sexuality, having warm relationships, but they're not erotic relationships, and getting on with serving Jesus, perhaps for all of our life. That that's actually an option? Do we have the imagination to even comprehend that? You want people to expand their minds, basically. Yeah. Mm. Seb, what about you? How can faith communities better support single people? 
Yeah, I think definitely, as I alluded to earlier, there is sometimes um, an isolating experience for people that may choose to remain single in its varying forms within Catholicism. And I think we need to make more of an effort to support them. So if, for example, if there's a, a priest who's at the head of a parish or looks after a parish out in remote Australia, I think we need to make sure that they have a community around them to support them and be there for them. Because as I said, we are multifaceted beings. We we need um, physical affection, even though it might not be sexual in nature, we still need that physical touch of other human people that would love us around us. And we need that to have those smiling faces around us and that's really important for everyone on our journey through life on a very communal level. This is God Forbid and we're with Kamal Werakoon, Seb James and Howra Cash. Up next, Wits End. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. And this week, love is in the air and so is singleness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Let's test out our buzzers. Howra Cash, test your buzzer. What's love got to do with it? By <laughs> Tina Turner. <laughs> Seb James, test your buzzer. Love is in the air. Yes, I love this song. <laughs> Everywhere I look around. John Paul Young. <laughs> yep, Love is in the Air by John Paul Young. Kamal Warakoon, test your buzzer. Love is a battlefield. Can we swap buzzers? <laughs> <laughs> That's Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. Okay, question. Singles Day in China provides a chance for single people to celebrate their singleness. What day does the celebration fall on? A, February the 13th, B, February the 15th, C, April the 14th, or D, November the 11th? Love is a well, I'll go with A, February 15th. I feel like that would it shouldn't come so close to Valentine's Day. Maybe November, the day answer. Howra is right. Woo! Oh, okay, wow. fair November 11 was chosen as Singles Day because of the way the date is written. The 11th one, of one, the 11th one. looks like four ah. solitary ah. sticks. I totally intentionally knew that. <laughs> and wow. this is why the holiday is known as the Single Sticks Holiday in China. Single Sticks. I get it. Isn't that cute? <laughs> okay, cute. next question. How do people celebrate Singles Day in China? Any guesses? Love is a battle. Maybe they all go out on their own and like have lunch on uh, uh, see, seated on um, now. <laughs> I'll think of something else. That sounded very okay. Strange. Not sure. Yeah, you want me to tell you? Yes, yes please. please. Okay. Well, you treat yourself if you know parks and recreation. You celebrate Singles Day by going on a massive shopping spree. Get out! And it's so big <laughs> that Singles Day actually beats Black Friday as the world's <gasps> number one shopping day. Are there sales? Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, check on this out. So last year, e-commerce company Alibaba earned 213.5 billion yuan. That's approximately 42 billion Australian dollars during its 24-hour online sale. Next question. In February 2018, Eternity News posted an opinion piece titled 10 Dumb Things Christians Have Said About Being Single. Ouch. What was the first item on the list? Love is a I think it was something like, you're too pretty to be single. Close, actually. It says, you're so lovely. How come you're not married? Yeah, oh my it. God, I get this all the time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So I great. don't. Why aren't you no married? one ever says that to me. 
Kamal, we need to talk. The writer, Tess Delbridge, suggested a comeback that a singleton could offer in response. And she said, you could say, there are plenty of jerks who end up getting married. I don't think loveliness is God's prerequisite for marriage. That's just not how he works. Mm. I'm totally using that. Yeah. yeah I'll good. give it to you afterwards. Thanks. <laughs> okay, next question. Which country has the greatest number of single households in the world? Is it A, Denmark, B, Japan, C, Sweden, or D, Australia? Love is in the air. I'll say C, Japan. I'm actually going with Australia. Okay. I think Denmark because they're just so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's Sweden. Oh, close. Cool. Close. <laughs> According to the Eurostat website, 52% of households in Sweden are 52%? Sing- yeah, yeah. single. 52%? Yeah. Yeah, single households, and that's over half the population. Yeah. Okay, next question. The Pope is perhaps the most famous celibate in the world. Which mm. of the following facts about Pope Francis's younger days is true? Is it A, he studied chemistry and philosophy? Or B, he was a bouncer at a nightclub? <laughs> or C, he once had a girlfriend who shared his love of tango? Or D, all of the above? What's love got to do, got to do with it? So, I'm going to say D because it's just wow. trippy enough. I would only say A because I know that's true, but I'm... I think he only studied chemistry and philosophy, yeah. but uh, Hara's saying he did everything. Come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm game to go with the ones that a girlfriend um, who shared his love of what? Of tango. 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 Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Then again, tango is quite sensual. So. Oh, well, just being sensual doesn't stop you from being single and becoming Pope. That's <laughs> true. Says the Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the answer is all of the above. There you go. And with regard to the fact about his girlfriend, Pope Francis has said, and I quote, she was one of a group of friends I went dancing with, but then I discovered my religious vocation. And I have to say, as a woman, I don't know how if I would feel thrilled or insulted that I turned my ex (laughs) off me and onto God. I was literally just about to say that. Like, how would you feel being broken up with, sorry, babe, this is over. I don't see a future because... And I don't see a future with any other woman now. Any other woman now. Like, you, it's it's all about God. I do know people that have made that decision. Right, okay. In in, In the middle of a relationship? In an engagement, I've seen. In an engagement. Oh, that would be a smackdown. Yeah, that is difficult. That is probably for another panel then. Yeah. (laughs) And with that, we've reached the end of God Forbid. Thank you to our wonderful panel, Kamal Warakun, Presbyterian Minister and PhD candidate in multicultural ministry. Thank you, everyone. It's been a blast. Hara Cash, Muslim performance poet and mental health advocate. Thank you for being on God Forbid. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. And Seb James, Catholic video journalist and spiritual mentor. Thank you for being on Thanks the program. Thanks very much, guys. It was great. Now, don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on iTunes or the ABC Listen app. And you can email James, who will be back on board next time, at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm Justine Toe. Until next week, remember to be good to each other. God Forbid. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.